Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. The Open Data Institute is holding its annual conference in London this week, so we thought we would revisit an interview from earlier this year with the organisation's chief executive and an expert in artificial intelligence. I think that we get better outcomes from diverse teams generally and diversity in all kinds of ways. But I don't think that we should use a lack of diversity as an excuse for not doing well around our ethical use of data or the accountability that we wrap around our systems. It isn't the case that white men can't think ethically. They can. That was Jenny Tennyson. She came into the FT earlier this year to talk to me about her work in helping to develop best practice for the use and sharing of data. I began by asking her how she got interested in AI. I went to university in Nottingham where the AI group was actually in the psychology department. So I actually went to university to study psychology and then got so into computers and computing that I then went into AI and did a PhD in AI. Uh And how did you end up as chief executive of the Open Data Institute? A complete accident, really. I was an independent consultant for a while and then got into really supporting a website called legislation.gov.uk which was all about open publication of the UK's legislation database. And that led me into open data, open government data. And when the position for technical director at the Open Data Institute opened up in 2012, then I jumped at it because it was a real opportunity to do some work in an area that I really loved and was really passionate about making data more available for everyone. And then the previous CEO, Gavin, left and I was asked to step up and being CEO. Right. Tell us a bit about the history of the ODI and its purpose. The Open Data Institute was founded in 2012 by Sir Nigel Shadbolt and Tim Berners-Lee. And it was set up in the kind of wave that there was at that time around open data and the importance of open data, partly for transparency reasons, but also because people recognised that open data could really unlock a huge amount of value for our economy and make government work and business more efficient. So it was set up with a kind of mission to unlock the value of open data specifically and really there a drive around getting data that was being published by government used more widely. And over time then that has altered our focus and what we look at has altered a bit. In particular, we've recognised that we can't just look at open data as being the only thing that determines whether we get value out of data at all. So we talk about data across the spectrum from closed data to different ways of sharing data to open data. And we've also realised that you can't just talk about openness, you have to be talking also about trust and trustworthiness and how we can get the best out of data. Right. And you're a non-profit organisation. How are you funded? When we were first set up, we had a big grant from UK government, a big core grant that was seed money, basically, to get us going. That lasted for five years. Right now, then we have some core funding from Luminate, which is a philanthropic group set up by Pierre Midia and others. And then we also get some money from UK government to do a big R&D programme. We have a big programme running called Open Active with Sport England, which is about opening up activity data. And then the rest of our funding comes from work with companies, research projects, training and so on. Now everyone is talking about data these days being fantastically valuable, it being the new oil 
lots of other different comparisons. What's the best way to conceptualize data, do you think? Well, I always talk about data as being like roads. And the reason that I think it's a good analogy is that it really emphasizes that there's no point in data in and of itself. We use data to get to decisions, to make decisions, to act differently in just the same way as we navigate along roads in order to get somewhere. We're not just driving for fun, although... I do like playing with data for fun, so maybe maybe that does also apply. But yeah, we, we use the analogy of roads because like roads, data is an infrastructure that we rely on. It's something that our modern economies need in order to run efficiently and effectively. And you can play around with that analogy. So for example, like roads that are poor quality, you know, just dirt tracks, they're longer to navigate along. It doesn't mean that you can't navigate along them at all. It just means that you might be restricted in the transport that you use and it will take a longer time. Same way poor quality data means that it takes a longer time to navigate that. At the same time, we don't need all roads to be massive multi-lane motorways. Some dirt tracks are okay in order to get to out-of-the-way places. Same applies with data. We don't need all data sets to be massively high quality, but there are some that are so essential that we really need to invest in them. Where do you think the greatest benefits are going to come from opening up data? Um, Can you give us some examples of where you think it's really going to change people's lives? So I really love the Open Active programme that we've got running at the Open Data Institute with Sport England at the moment, because it has this goal of getting more people more active. And it's about getting information into their hands so that they can make decisions about where they go to, you know, take part in physical activity, where they take their kids to a club or when they can quickly nip off for something at lunchtime. And it's all about making that data really accessible for people and people with different kinds of requirements. And that, for me, is one of the big things about open data. We're all used to organisations that hold data and then provide a single application or a single view over it, which suits some users and might not suit others. But when you have open data, what that means is that you can have lots of different applications built for lots of different purposes and lots of different kinds of users. So you can have that same data about physical activity available for everyone, but you can have specific applications that focus on parents who want to take their children out or people who are older and want to have less active activity. And so it's that flexibility and the fact that it can really suit users that I really love about open data. And is there a natural resistance to opening up data, particularly in the kind of public sector? Do people want to kind of hoard their data and think it's incredibly valuable and secretive and they can't possibly share it with anyone else? Yeah, there are lots of reasons that people have for not opening up data, some of which are very good reasons. So we always say that data should be as open as possible while protecting people's privacy, keeping corporate confidentiality, maintaining national security and so on, right? There are good reasons that not all data should be open. But there are also some, I think, bad reasons. We often see companies and governments thinking that holding on to data is the way of extracting the most value out of it, including for them. 
And that's just wrong because data is most valuable when it gets used. So thinking about how it should be used and how you want to promote its use is the way to do it. In the European Union, then, we've had for some time the reuse of public sector information regulations, which have made the case and the argument that public sector information should be open for everybody because that grows the use of this data that is held by the public sector. And there's a very strong argument there because we paid for it, right? Interestingly, that's now going in into the new open data regulations in the European Union are now going into opening up even data that is held by private sector companies if they're performing a public service. So you see the argument for more openness coming even into the private sphere there. Now, there's some criticisms of the open data movement to the extent that people argue that when you open up public sector data sets, the people who are best able to exploit that data are the big tech companies who are the best tech experts and data experts. What do you make of that argument that, in fact, we are turning a public resource into private profit? I think that that argument has some things that I agree with, but ultimately I think it's a flawed argument. So it is true that big firms have the most money to invest in the capabilities that are needed in order to take advantage of data. On the other hand, they also have enough money and capability to collect that data for themselves. So holding back public sector information because you don't want big private sector organisations to grab hold of it, actually you're not stopping them from getting hold of that kind of data. All you're doing when you're holding back that public information is actually stopping the people who can't collect it themselves from ever having hold of it. And those are the smaller companies, the SMEs. Maps is a really obvious example of this. You know, Google went and made its own map. It didn't need to have ordnance survey data in order to do that. So holding back access to ordnance survey data where that's held back is only really disbenefiting the smaller organisations who can't afford to get hold of it for their own use. Okay, and you were talking earlier about the necessity for having trust in the way that our data is handled and owned and used. How do we do that? I mean, there's obviously an enormous amount of distrust at the moment in the whole way that the data economy works. What do we need to do to fix that? I think that there's a fundamental kind of layer around trust, which is just, you know, hold data about people securely, right? Obey GDPR. There are just some hygiene factors that are necessary for building trust. But I think we need to go beyond that. We talk about three things at ODI. One is obviously a term that's used a lot now, which is data ethics. Thinking through the impact of the way in which data is being used and trying to do that for good rather than for ill. And there are lots of organisations that are creating their own kind of ethical principles and trying to stick to those when they develop applications and so on. We have a data ethics canvas at ODI that helps organisations think through those kinds of questions when they're designing services. But it needs to go beyond that. I think that just saying that you have some ethical principles doesn't mean that you're sticking to them. So we need some accountability wrapped around that claim for ethical processing. I think in order to build trust with the people who are affected by the way in which you use data you need to engage with them you need to be talking with them you need to be co-creating with them so they're taking on the journey with you about why you're using data in a particular way but I also think that there's something very deep around whether we feel as a society and as individuals that the way benefits are being accreted around data is equitable or not. Is it equitable at the moment? I don't think it's equitable at the moment I think that what we see is 
is the large companies, particularly big tech firms, raking in huge amounts of profit and other people can't break into that space and that data can't be used for public good and by the public sector. And I think that we need to really reconsider the way in which we think about data as a resource, as an infrastructure that we build that is supporting our economies and our societies. And the mix between public and private investment and the way in which that should work is something that I think we need to work through. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Building on that argument, I mean, there are some politicians, particularly in mainland Europe, who argue for the concept of data taxes, not in the sense of levying taxes on the data companies, but forcing the data companies to contribute some of their data to the public good. Is that ever realisable, do you think? I think that's happening in some places already. There are some companies who perform data philanthropy out of the goodness of their heart, then they make data available for Can particular... You give some examples you of So MasterCard does that, for right. example. Actually has been doing that for quite some time. You see satellite imagery that's been collected, being made available, for example, in disaster situations to help OpenStreetMap mappers map on top of that data. Sometimes you see telecoms records being used to help create statistics and understand populations in the global south, for example, or to track disease. So it is happening in those kinds of ways, but not in a thought through regulated way. There's a difference between relying on the goodness of the hearts of companies and thinking through what is the data infrastructure that we need for our country and how are we going to build it. So there are already some regulatory signs within, say, the Digital Economy Act, where the Office for National Statistics can grab hold of administrative data. So things like sales of particular products in a supermarket in order to create a retail price index, a more accurate retail price index. So I think we should be looking at more kinds of examples like that, where in order to build our data infrastructure, we get hold of data from the larger companies that are collecting it. That doesn't just apply to the big tech firms. It applies across the board. Right. Now, one of the things that you're doing at the ODI is pioneering three examples, I think, of data trusts in very different areas. Could you, first of all, define what a data trust is? So a data trust is a legal structure that provides independent third-party stewardship of data. And the bits that are important there is that it's using a legal structure, so it has a particular legal form. There's some independence about the holding of data, so it's for some beneficiaries, for some people who are going to benefit from it, who might not be the organisations that put data into the trust. Okay, and can you tell us the three examples that you're looking to pioneer? The three examples that we're working on, one is with GLA and Borough of Greenwich, which is looking at city data and how that should be held. So data from smart lampposts, for example. One is looking at food waste data. We're doing that with RAP, which is the not-for-profit that deals with food waste and trying to reduce food waste. And looking at where the flows of food waste are, understanding the supply chain so that we can cut down on food waste. And that's with data from a number of different different supermarkets and so on. 
And then the third example is around illegal wildlife trade. And there are a couple of forms of data that we're talking about there. One is data sets that can be used to help border officials recognise illegal wildlife when it comes through the border or body parts when they come through the border. And the other is data from sensors in the environment that might tell you where there are poachers going through an area or might tell you where there's endangered wildlife going through a particular area so you can tell where it is. Okay, let's drill down a bit into one of those examples, the one that you're doing with Greenwich on the transport and urban mobility data. What is the type of data that you're collecting? Who is managing it and how is it going to be used? So that's one of the things that we're trying to work out. So the example is data that is being captured from lampposts that are monitoring parking spaces for electric vehicles. And the whole point of the pilot is to work out who should hold it, how that should be held, what the legal structure is for that. And then what decision making framework should be put around making that data available to other people who should be involved in that decision making and how to bring the community along with it. So as a resident of Greenwich, I would benefit from the fact that it would be easier to park, there would be more monitoring of air pollution so that I would hopefully have a cleaner environment or how's this going As I understand it, the data that we're talking about is mostly useful for the people who are enforcing parking restrictions. So it's mostly useful for the council. The reason that we think that there should be a data trust around this, or that might be the right model to use, is that the lampposts are put in by a particular private sector organisation. Obviously, they're monitoring behaviour in a particular environment, which is a city environment. And there are real questions about who should own, control, steward, take care of that data and in whose interests. In many cases where there are smart cities, you have all of these sensors all over a city and the data from them flows to the private sector organisation that has put those sensors in place. You only get hold of it as either the council or as citizens through very restricted kinds of mechanisms. And there's big questions there about who has that control. In whose interest is this data being used and collected? Right. One of the other areas that's obviously causing a lot of controversy at the moment in the whole area of data is the sense of algorithmic fairness and algorithmic justice. And there was a fascinating debate when I attended the ODI summit last year on this very subject. How do you think that we get transparency of algorithms applied to many areas of our lives? How do we ensure that these are just? Those are huge questions that will take years to to get to the bottom of, to be honest with you. There are some very kind of simplistic answers that can be given around transparency and the need for understanding where the data comes from that trains algorithms and the biases in that data itself. And therefore, the degree to which you can trust the way in which conclusions are drawn by a particular algorithm. For me, though, we have to recognise that whenever we're making decisions about people's lives we need to be very careful about those decisions whether they're made by computers or they're made by people and there needs to be some level of accountability around those decisions the ability for people to seek redress when they feel like they have been wronged and so on 
and where algorithmic accountability comes into that is that we mustn't think that just because those decisions are being made by computers they're necessarily right or without bias. We are building into them exactly the biases that we have currently in our society or historically in our society when algorithms are being trained on historical data. And so it's all the more important to have those wrappers of accountability around those. And then as a technologist, there are obviously the technical ways in which you can detect bias when you're doing machine learning. You can try to optimise to get rid of bias. But I also think that there are things that we can do, again, from that kind of process perspective of, for example, in tricky situations, in tricky decision making, rather than thinking that one algorithm is going to give us always the right answer, have several of them that have been developed in different ways and see where they disagree. Because <laughs> where they disagree, those are going to be the sticky cases where we need to dig into them more. Yes, at the debate at the ODI conference, I think one of the participants referenced this wonderful quote from Cathy O'Neill that algorithms are opinions embedded in code. And so we're talking about opinions, aren't we? And in a democratic society, you can have a clash of opinions. And so what could be fair for an individual might be considered unfair for society, particularly when it comes to areas like like sentencing decisions or parole decisions in the judicial system. For me, then, the big questions around algorithmic accountability actually just throw up huge questions about accountability full stop in society, right? Because currently we have flawed decision makers making decisions about a lot of things. What we've learned to do over time in our society is put in place those accountability mechanisms, having transparency, having the media, having the forms of redress, having, in some cases, like with juries, multiple people making decisions rather than just one. So I think that we need to learn from some of those patterns that we have built up as flawed decision makers ourselves and see how we can apply those in the kind of algorithm world. We also just need to be clear that not all algorithms are the same. You know, the algorithm that is correcting my spelling on my phone, for example, doesn't need the same kind of transparency and accountability wrapped around it as one that's providing recommendations around parole decisions, right? Do you think it would help if there were more diverse teams of people who were developing and writing these algorithms? I think that diverse teams operate better. I think that we get better outcomes from diverse teams generally and diversity in all kinds of ways. But I don't think that we should use a lack of diversity as an excuse for not doing well around our ethical use of data or the accountability that we wrap around our systems. It isn't the case that white men can't think ethically, they can. And so although I do think that diversity is incredibly important, what's more important is putting the right kinds of processes and practices in place as you're developing systems and applications. We've touched on a lot of very interesting, challenging areas. Uh, final one I want to conclude with is Brexit. Uh, a light, uncontentious issue. <laughs> Just asking everybody about Brexit. <laughs> um, I mean, clearly uh, Britain's relationship with the EU is going to change in many fundamental ways after Brexit. How is it going to affect our data economy? At the moment, we're having equivalence in most areas. Is that possible to sustain, do you think? There's so much uncertainty about what we're going to end up with in terms of the relationship between the EU and the UK that it's very hard to tell. 
if we continue to have a very close relationship with the European Union, then I'd expect us to keep up equivalency, especially around data protection laws. There are some of the other areas, I mentioned the reuse of public sector information, now the open data law, where I think that there could start to be some divergence, which worries me. For me, one of the things that's interesting around Brexit is the degree to which we are cutting ourselves off from or may cut ourselves off from the data infrastructure that is being built and has been built and that we have been relying on from the European Union. And that's one of those things that, like a lot of infrastructure that happens below the surface that we don't really understand or know about, could just go wrong in very unexpected ways. So... It's not just about the regulations and laws, it's actually about practical operational kinds of things about access to data that currently is being held by the European Union and what access we'll have to it long term. And if there's a no-deal Brexit, is it going to immediately impact a lot of people and data transfers or not? I don't think anybody knows. I know that the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport have been working extremely hard on what that means and what kinds of protections we need to put in place. Mm -hmm. But it could be that... If we don't immediately get data equivalence in Britain, that there could be a danger to data flows across borders. Yes. And hence, in some places, then people are already moving data to data centres that are in Ireland or elsewhere in order to protect themselves against that. Because, yes, if we don't have that data equivalency, then it means that we can't hold within our own boundaries the data about European citizens, as I understand it. So the conclusion from this is that open data is a very good thing. <laughs> well, well, not about European citizens, I would just put in like that. But data that is as open as possible, that lets us do as much as we can with it, enables us to make decisions without having harmful side effects is a very good thing. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Jenny. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic. In the meantime, we welcome comments and suggestions from listeners. So please email us at tectonic at ft.com and let us know what you think of the show. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon.